Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. column, column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly, yeah, I said weekly, I didn't stutter. Rhetorical assault in the news cycle, people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do all kinds of remarkable things at a place called Freethink. And when I say remarkable, I mean just very impressive. And I am delighted to be here with you. Our very good friend Michael Moynihan is pretending to be Bob Vila on this old house. And he's Is that it? He's done, you think? Like yeah. we're we're not gonna see that's, him. It's gonna be like you that. were the, the first six months you bought that wonderful property. Yeah. Whose sale is <laughs> almost final. Amazing property. Well, <laughs> you know what it is? I think in Moynihan's case, he launched into this and purchased a home, which he's recently settled on, and he knew what he was buying. He knew that it was going to be a project. And I was quite surprised that I had a sort of major renovation project on my hands. So He's probably in better shape. And of course, the person I'm talking to, Matt Welch, editor at Large of Reason Magazine, very good friend. He is, in fact, here uh, back from his vacation. Uh, I think he's been working this week and doing other things. You may have heard him on that other podcast that he does, which shall not be named, uh, even though it's quite good. It is quite good. And I listen. And you probably ought to listen, too. Um, And while Michael Moynihan isn't here, we do have a guest with us. Um, This is his second time returning to the podcast, so he knows exactly what we do, and he made a conscious decision to come back here um, and to risk his reputation and his future and his livelihood to consort (laughs) with us, which makes me very proud Um, (laughs) or or confused. Uh, Steve Kornacki, he is the national political correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. And that may be the first time I got anyone's introduction exactly right, unless you going to tell me that I screwed You interrupted up. me to say just that. That was uh, amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And, th- and that just, I mean, Steve, it is because of the enormous respect and admiration that I have for you. I am so glad that you decided to grace us with your presence again. Well, I appreciate you having me. And, you know, I guess it's, it's something about the pandemic and, uh, Spending so much time alone and inside, I, I feel like taking some risks. So why not? <laughs> but you're not alone. We were we were hearing on the uh, on the pregame chatter, which is the super exclusive uh, ch- uh, uh, Patreon giving level, it doesn't exist yet. Um, but that you've actually been going into Thirty Rock. I'm I'm yeah. as someone I I, uh, I almost went on your network once recently, which would have been the first time in like six months. But I, I've been doing more um, uh, mornings with Maria at Fox Business Network for reasons that elude me. Um, but I'm very happy for it. But like uh, I keep saying, like, can I come in? I'd like to come in. Um, and they're still they don't have hair and makeup yet. So like, what do you are you like in a huge, like famous tower building with nobody in there? Like trying to apply the spray tan on your own face? What's happening there? Yeah, pre- I mean, I, I, it's pretty much I'm Macaulay Culkin in one of the Home Alone people's <laughs> network. I get like, I get one of the most famous addresses in New York to myself. Um, <laughs> there um, is not a lot going on, not just in the building. Um, I mean, all of Midtown, you know, Manhattan. Um, it's just, it's so quiet. Um, you know, I go in there, you know, I'm doing hits throughout the day, you know, two minutes here, two minutes there. Um, you're right. There's no makeup people. There's no hair people. Um, they left me, uh, back in March when this all started, I came in one day and there was a bag on my desk 
Uh, <laughs> I, just, I never know what they've actually been putting on me for years to go on the air. I, I just, I Why sit there, they touch my face with all these things and I, and I walk out and I do. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but there's all these different <laughs> pieces you open up and there's different colors and sponges and things. So I just, I dab it in all the different little things they gave me. And I just, you know, touch my face a few times. <laughs> no one's, no one's complained. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah. And that's the hair I'm completely on my own on. I mean, I had, uh, four, I mean, we all did, right. I had four and a half months there, I think at the start of this thing, before you could even in New York city, get a haircut, yeah. uh, you know, by the end, it was just, uh, uh, it was something else, but I mean, I, you know, I'm not alone in that. So I think, you know, everybody's, everybody's been very understanding of, uh, you know, these situations. And to be clear, do, do you like throw up? Like what happens in, in month four with the Kornacki cut? Yeah, the problem was it was like when I turned around at the board and do the uh, all the board things, I definitely had a mullet. Yeah, you know, because I did a pretty good job kind of hiding it in the front, and then I would turn around and I was like, oh, "No, it's like Richard Marks is up there." Yeah. Holy crap! Uh, but it's so like I, I presumably there's camera, there's lights, but that's it. There's like you know four people in the building. It's, you know, yeah, there's, you know, security downstairs. They got a temperature check station when you come in. It's, it's 100.4. I think that's kind of the standard for any, you know, major bill. It makes me think like if somebody shows up and they're 100.3, do you feel good about letting them in? But um, <laughs> it's the cutoff. So I've been under 100.4 every day. Um, there's one person, you know, you've been in, in 3A, uh, in big, vast studio there. Um, where they do a lot. There's like basically one person in there who will, you know, help wow. you get mic'd up and everything. Um, I'll see there's actually, they do, I would say there's one or two hours a day right now where they're actually live from the building where somebody else is in there hosting. One of the hosts who's in is actually literally in the office next to me. So it's like the entire floor is empty. My office and his office are occupied. So we'll see each other. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, you can walk these, these vast hallways, ride the elevator, not see anybody. Um, it's, it's, it's been that way. You know, I've basically, you know, been there fairly regularly since March and that's been what it's like. And I don't think it's changed too much. And pretty much none of the shows are, are based there anymore. Yeah. They were in, they did, um, for the convention coverage a couple of weeks ago, there were a lot of people there. They did some of the live programming. So a lot of people I hadn't seen really in months. I just, I just saw, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's most of it, you know, folks are, folks are at home um, for all sorts of, you know, understandable reasons. I don't want to derail everything about the, uh, about weird, creepy work things, but this comes up in other contexts. Um, Like I think we all underrate how much uh, even being in a semi office sometimes makes us, a bit more normal and a lot less paranoid mm -hmm. um, uh, about like just trying to judge communications that are all like textual or even, you know, zoom, you can pick up on some things, but everyone hates zoom at this point. Um, so like, what, uh, how was the kind of like uh, paranoid misunderstandings at, uh, at, <laughs> at work? Ben? <laughs> you know what it is for me? It's, it, it, it's, it's normalcy in a slightly different way. And it's just, I can convince myself for, a good chunk of the day that the world hasn't, you know, blown up all around me. Um, because I, I'm in the office, I'm sitting in my office and especially if the door is shut and I'm not looking out at a vast empty space, it kind of feels, you know, normal. I got up, I showered, I got changed. I went in, I'm sitting in my office, all that, you know, social media stuff or email traffic, it's there, but it would be there anyway. I, I would get it anyway. 
and there's kind of a rhythm. It, it puts me in kind of the rhythm of a day, you know, that I would normally have, you know, and then it's like, okay, now it's lunchtime. And I go down to the concourse downstairs where there's usually a thousand people in the empty hallways. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's nothing open for two blocks. I've got to, you know, so it's, it's, it's a really jarring thing when that happens, but I I've thought about it. Cause I, at the beginning I was like, you know, do I ask them to get like a, a home camera set up or do I ask them, you know, I realize I'm probably, you know, dead. go to the bottom of that list, then go two rungs lower. That's probably the position I would have been in to actually get a home studio set up. But <laughs> I was like, I didn't want to ask them because I was like, look, if they're going to, if I can get back in there, it's going to feel psychologically, it's just going to feel a lot more normal. And, and that's, I, I, it's, I feel like it's probably made a huge difference for me the last six months. That's kind yeah. of getting through it, not being, not feeling I'm stuck in the apartment. You know? Yeah. It, it was one of the interesting things about the initial stages of the pandemic to see all of these well-established major network cable news programs and, and news programs in general, even, you know, the good morning Americas of the world suddenly reduced to the status of like YouTubers, like where they have <laughs> no kind of serious remote setup whatsoever. They've got shit lighting. And effectively, like most of these YouTube kids during that period of time were producing stuff that looked way better, looked better. than most <laughs> of the major networks, whether or not the stuff that they were doing was actually better in any sort of substantive way, which in some cases and in some networks, you know, maybe is a close call whether or not they could even come close to the quality of some YouTubers. Um, but it is interesting to see sort of things return to normal. Um, and initially, I couldn't quite tell. I mean, you were taking it all in stride, whether or not you had the sense that you hadn't drew the short straw and that you were still having to go into the office. But <laughs> I, I will say as someone who is today for the first time in many, many, many months sitting inside of the Freethink New York office recording from here, um, that it really does like, sort of change things to leave the house, to show up in the office, turn the key in the normal way, although it's a swipe card. And to sit down, even on a floor and in an office where I am one of like three people that I've seen all day on a floor that used to be teeming with people, you know, in a building that was teeming with people. And it's both bizarre um, and a little bit reassuring um, to, to have that sort of normalcy and routine and rhythm return to you. That's a WeWork facility, isn't it? So basically, yeah. don't you own it now? <laughs> well, yeah, no. I mean, WeWork hasn't completely gone out of business yet, but I mean, it's devastating. Like, it's kind of amazing just how profoundly the COVID apocalypse has transformed our lives and has changed the prospects and likely fortunes of many, many businesses. There's a lot of uh, calamity and peril in it. Obviously, a lot of opportunity for the right kinds of models as well and some shakeups and restructuring. But whatever comes next, uh, it doesn't really seem like models like this are necessarily long for this world. I wonder what the uh, effect will be precisely on what you're talking about, Camille, is cable news, right? Because Fox uh, News Channel, um, one of the things that they were able to do early is say, we don't have to spend all this money. Mm. <laughs> Let's get people around the crappiest table. And and I'm not like talking out of school uh, when I say that. I don't mean any disrespect to them, but like Camille and I worked around a table in that building for 15 months and uh, it not our office, which was a hallway, uh, but, <laughs> uh, the actual table. Uh, it's incredible. It's incredible how chintzy most of that stuff is. But they realize that what people are tuning in for is to 
engage with the hosts and the commentators and to be part of that lively crackling discussion more than they want to hear from the correspondent from Baghdad, uh, which is not to say that Fox doesn't have some talented correspondents. They certainly do. But like the the way that that simple act changed cable news was huge. I mean, uh, CNN has been has has never really figured out how to respond to that. Like they responded to it by kind of aping it in many in many senses. Like, let's get like some, instead of like four panelists, let's get 13 uh, hmm. around all talking about and engaging us up. And that's totally different. And I'm a little bit older than you guys, but it's totally different than the CNN when it first came up, which was really reporting heavy. Um, and even the anchor stuff uh, or the, you know, the headline news stuff had a lot of uh, foreign correspondentry, but that changed the economics. So I wonder what uh, any of this does. Like, I wonder, uh, and I'm wondering out loud, not asking it as a question for Steve, but like if the production value difference has made a difference in ratings, like I'm sure there's some shows that have like said, screw it. We're going to like go back in the studio. We're going to get hair and makeup. Let's let's do it. So at least looks like it's 2019 and they're up against their normal competition. Are they rating any better? I don't know. And if they're not, then maybe a lot of people are are thinking about what happens afterwards. Like you can you can be more flexible about who you get on or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's so many different ways in which like the pandemic has scrambled everything up. So it sh- shook up the snow globe of, of possibilities. And this is really low on the totem pole of things that anyone cares about. Um, but like, it's going to affect everything, you know? Uh, and that's one of the things that I think it'll affect. Yeah. Well, we can, we can jump into it a little bit here um, because Steve, one of the things we'd really, really, really like to talk to you about, obviously is the upcoming election, the polls, um, what sense you can make out of all of this and what, if anything, is moving the needles. So perhaps we could do a bit of a, of a TikTok, move through the calendar, talk about some of the big things that have happened over the course of the last six or seven months um, and get your perspective on what seems to matter. And as we enter into the tail end of this most remarkable uh, presidential election year. Um, remarkable, perhaps, because it is the most consequential one of our lives, um, as has been promised or said over and over again, and is always said about every damn election, or just because it's happening in the midst of a global pandemic and a massive social something another. Um, I think a lot of people keep calling it racial reckoning. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, I would call it a woke apocalypse, but I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Uh, so where to begin with this TikTok? Do we begin a little? One, one way, one way I would suggest is like, we have experienced in our lives, all this calamity. Certainly people have died. The economy's tanked. You know, the government has spent, has a higher deficit this year than they've ever spent money before in a year. Mm-hmm. Like it's stuff is nuts. Mm-hmm. And you look at the history of the polls and it's just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, crazy thing happened. What is that, Steve? Why doesn't anything blip or am I reading it wrong? No, I I feel that 90% plus of the population made up its mind about Donald Trump sometime in 2015 or 2016 and hasn't changed its mind. Um, But that, let's say 10%, maybe less, 6%, 8%, whatever it may be, that has changed its mind or could change its mind. It's close enough that, you know, it could matter and, and that could swing the election either to one of those scenarios where Trump, you know, again, pulls a rabbit out of the hat a little bit like he did in 2016 again, or 
it shifts the other way and, and it moves into, you know, Biden blowout territory. I mean, I think that's the kind of the range we're looking at here from very, very narrow Trump victory to big, broad Biden victory. I think it's, it's somewhere, you know, in, in there right now. And the way I look at it with with what you're describing, I mean, it's, it's true. Um, Trump's approval rating. His average approval rating, and you can you get those daily readouts now, Real Clear Politics, 538, all these sites, you know, have a running daily average, never, never broken 50%. You know, he used to talk about presidents getting that honeymoon in the first couple of weeks, first couple of months, even Jimmy Carter, you know, got over 60%. Trump never broke 50. Mm-hmm. His honeymoon was, I think, in, in the Real Clear average. This is like, you know, first week of February 2017, 46.7%. It was the peak. And he had two weeks or so, a week or two in April of this year when he started the daily COVID briefings, Fauci. And, you know, he was he's kind of getting a little bit on message for about a week or two there. That that was the high watermark of his presidency from a public opinion standpoint. And it brought him to an approval rating of about 48 and a half percent. And it brought him in the national polling with Biden to a gap of four point two percent. That's the best he's done. Um, but the flip side of it is. The worst he's done is significantly better than some of the other than really the two one term presidents of the modern era. You know, George W. Bush, uh, George, excuse me, George H. W. Bush fell as low as 29 percent approval rating in his reelection year. Holy you know, 44.3% right now. Bush fell as low as 29%. Jimmy Carter was down at about 31 or 32% in the fall of 1980, you know, as he faced the voters. So Trump's significantly higher. Than the two presidents who got drummed out of office, what he is is he's about I would say he's about four points lower, three or four points lower than the two presidents who narrowly won re-election. That's George W. Bush, 04, Barack Obama, 2012. Both of them were about at a, at this point and on election day, we're at about a 48, 49 percent approval rating, um, and they won. You know, it was a narrow, you know, two, three, four point. I think it was three and a half uh, was the margin for Obama. And uh, is about that, about three, three and a half for for Bush in uh, in 2004. Narrow reelections. So I, I Trump is not. You know, if you just look at the raw numbers, his approval rating is about four points off something that would put him in the range of Obama 12 and George W. Bush 04. Mm-hmm. And if you bumped him up, you know, three four points in the horse race against Biden, and you brought Biden down three four points, you'd have a dogfight. So it's it's. He's only a few points up. So it's, there's like two ways of looking at it. It's like he, he just needs a little bit of movement. And this is a real race. But in the context of a presidency where his approval rating has never broken 50 percent, where it only got to 49 percent, you know, for a matter of days as a pandemic was taking hold, the Trump getting those four points, you know, may be the equivalent of somebody else, you know, of a, of a previous president getting 20 points. Um, he's he's yet to prove, as small as the number sounds, he's yet to prove himself capable of getting it and sustaining it. But if he finds a way to get it just for the last week of the campaign, after three years and after three and three quarters years of failing to get it, if he can get it for the last week, the last couple of days of the campaign, he'll be in the same position he was in in 2016. It's interesting to think about it potentially coming down to the last couple of weeks, especially because we know now that North Carolina is voting and has been voting for about a week. Um, and there is some, perhaps I was reading a story anyways in the post that suggested that there might be some reasons to think that, you know, a lot of this early mail-in voting or just mail-in voting broadly, which seems like 
likely to play a much bigger role in this campaign cycle than in others um, may in fact be going okay, um, which is a, a, a thing that lots of people are concerned about, but there are plenty of other states to go. Um, but it's interesting to think that it could come down to you know the last couple of weeks when folks are already voting. And I imagine a lot more people will be taking advantage of the opportunity to vote early as well. Um, but it's also interesting to think about the fact that a lot of people just do not trust the polls um, and they don't trust the polls mm-hmm. because the, the narrative is that the polls completely failed to tell us what was likely to happen the last go round. Um, and that if anyone is going to outperform the polls, it's probably Donald Trump, because people, for whatever reason, um, aren't telling pollsters the right things or pollsters aren't asking the right questions or perhaps the polls just don't work anymore. Um, what, what's your take on that? Is, is it likely that we'll see another sort of sneaky Trump victory that doesn't seem to register in the polls? Because I talked to a number of people and they seem to think that, you know, Trump has got this in the bag. How do you know if you can actually trust the polling this time around? Well, I mean, the short answer is you don't know. Um, but I would hasten to add, you know, the errors can cut both ways. I mean, they, they wouldn't be errors if they were predictable. Um, and, you know, it is possible we get to the end of this campaign and we find out that the thing we were underestimating all along was the intensity of the, the public desire to get Trump out. Um, I mean, that, we may end up learning, you know, lessons that cut more that way. But I think the possibility you're describing, I think there is good reason for Um, not for people to be confident that's going to happen, but to be on guard for it, I would say, just in terms of taking that into account when you look at the polling now. Um, I I look at it at at two levels. Um, Number one is if you look back at 2016, um, the the final national polling average, I believe, was Clinton by 3.2. And she basically won the popular vote by two. So the average nationally was pretty close, although it was a little better than a point too heavy towards Clinton. So it enters into my mind, you know, the possibility there that, hey, wherever the national polls land, you know, maybe maybe Trump could knock a point off that, a point and a half off that. Um, so I, I, I say nationally, you know, when, when I look at it, the number I've been using in my mind is you look at the polling average and you just follow that every day. If it gets inside five, anything inside five, Biden lead of five or less in the national polling average, not any given national poll, the average of all the national polls, anything inside of five on that, I think really should open up the conversation about, okay, is this going to break for Trump just the right way in just the right states as we saw in 2016? To me, five points is that number. We're sitting at right now, I looked at it this morning, is 7.5 You know, as we're taping this. And again, it sounds like nothing. It's a 7.5 point gap right now for Trump. He's got to get it inside five to have at least a somewhat theoretically plausible shot at the Electoral College. That doesn't seem like much. He's been inside of five points against Biden for like six days this year. It's a tiny, you know, he's almost never been inside of even five points head to head against Biden. Now, he may get there, as we say, um, remains to be seen. But just to keep in mind, it sounds like he has to do very little. He's yet to prove he can really do that very little. Um, But okay, so I I think he's got to be inside of five you know, for the Electoral College to really come into consideration, really probably more realistically four, but I'll say five. The other thing I keep in mind when it comes to the polling is um, the specific miss, and and I recommend anybody out there, 
if they don't read him or follow him, Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics, T-R-E-N-D-E, Sean Trendy. He's written a lot about this. And it's the best stuff I've seen out there on it. Um, there have been polling problems um, pretty consistently and going beyond 2016 in some of these Midwest states, basically any place with a large non-college white population, blue collar, white, white working class, whatever you want to call it there. But that demographic of white voters without a college degree, it's like the, the heart and soul of the Trump base, the states where that, those voters are the most prominent demographically have been the states. And again, this goes beyond 2016 have been the states where the polling misses have been the most frequent. And those polling misses, at least I'd say basically through 2018, it's the last time we could really check in on these things. You still saw polling misses in those states away from the, 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 the polling miss was, it was biased toward the Democrats. Polling was too friendly to the Democrats than what the actual result was on election day. Mm-hmm. Now there are all sorts of theories for why that is. Some say it's simply there were just weren't enough polls taken and, and it just sort of played out that way. Um, I know NBC is affiliated with uh, Marist, Marist College. I don't know if it's Marist College or University. I apologize. I know they're the Red Foxes, but if you're college. with Marist in there and their polling is too, and they do great work. Lee Mearing off and he's been doing this for 40 years and he has changed this year. He has changed the methodology to try to address what I'm describing. Um, and it's, it, we can get into it later if you're interested. It's a very wonky thing, but it's caused some, um, I would say, controversy in the, in the kind of poll watching community. But it's just a way of saying um, the issue I'm describing is something that pollsters are very aware of. It's, it's a hotly debated topic. Certainly, the NBC Marist poll is, is, is taking a step. Um, I, when I listen to Lee, it makes sense to me, but um, to, to try to address that. But it's on my mind that I, I don't know anyone. It's not Marist specific. I, I don't know if anyone really has a handle on exactly what's going on with that white working class demographic in polling. And that looms large because Trump's hopes hinge on it. Um, isn't there also a, um, on the other direction, an undercount, polling undercount among Latinos in non-Florida states as well in terms of Democratic support? They usually exceed what you expect. Right. And so that, and that's when I say, you know, it's like we're always kind of fighting the last war, right? And I think that yeah. polling too. We're, we're all obsessed with who are the Trump voters we're missing and the possibility that the error goes in the other way and we end up talking about uh, what we missed on the Democratic side. That's an example of something we can miss. Um, It's an example of not, you know, there's a question mark here, too, about what um, non-white turnout, black turnout. What can we expect when it comes to black turnout Mm -hmm. relative to 2016? Um, Because there were a lot of assumptions, I think, that were baked in in 2016 about Obama-level black turnout. Um, And that was baked into a lot of the polling that you saw in 2016 and the expectations. And then that did not materialize. And in some states like Wisconsin, it really didn't materialize. Um, has that changed? Does does the presence, you know, all sorts of things, you hear, does the presence of Kamala Harris on the ticket change that? Or is the fact that she's number two, not number one? There's question marks there as well. And, and I think it's one of those things where we may, it's possible, you know, we wake up, you know, the day after the election and it's like, whoa, black turnout was much higher than we expected. Um, Latino turnout, much higher than we expected. Um, or then, you can take a twist on that. You talk to the Trump people who, who tell you, okay. Latino turnout much higher than expected, but Trump gets a much higher share of the male Latino vote than expected. Or, you know, so there's all these you know, possible twists on it. Um, you know, the, thing I'm, I'm, the thing I'm sure of is it will all look like it should have been obvious the day after the election, but we don't <laughs> necessarily see it now. 
Mm-hmm. One uh, aspect of the fighting the last war is focusing on the places where the last shots were fired. So there's a there's a, a strong emphasis on Wisconsin, and Wisconsin is legitimately fascinating. I think in many ways. <clears throat> um, speaking of what you should of all the places, if there's going to be a, any kind of third party or libertarian impact on the race, and there won't be much, I would predict. Um, uh, but like uh, it's Wisconsin and Minnesota. Um, that's the places where Joe Jorgensen is polling above 3%. That's basically only, only there. Um, but uh, the map changes, right? Like the conditions on the ground change and we're, we're, we could be facing, it's, it's completely plausible um, as weird as it sounds that you could have Biden win the presidency while Minnesota votes for the Republican for the first time since God knows when, 1976 or 72, it's been a long streak for Minnesota. Um, and Arizona votes Democrat. Like, what What the hell is, uh, <laughs> the, like, what's going on in the world? Damn it. Yeah, it was it was 72, 76, Mondale was on the ticket. So Minnesota was going to be loyal uh, to the Democrats then. But no, I, I, I think that's the, it's these two divergent demographic tracks among white voters. So white voters are basically, give or take, almost 70% of the electorate in the country. But you've got this large group of white voters without a college degree that have been going dramatically in the Republican direction, really in the Trump direction. And then you've got the story since Trump got elected in 2016 is the white voters with a college degree. That's the heart and soul of the blue wave of 2018. What you really saw in 2018 was just, it was a series of small waves, right? That washed over one metro area after another, the Detroit metro area, the Denver metro area, the Phoenix metro area, Orange County in California. The waves would be you know, hitting in those places. And then, by the way, Republicans would gain Senate seats in Tennessee and Indiana. So it, it, was a, it was a story of sort of just metropolitan waves around the country. And so, yeah, Arizona is a great example of this because 60 percent more, really more than 60 percent of the voting population in Arizona is Maricopa County. It's the Phoenix metro area. And this is, I think Democrats may have made more strides in Arizona than any state in the country from 2016 to 2020. It certainly showed up in the 2018 midterms. It's showing up in the polling so far. Our NBC Marist poll, I think, had Biden ahead by five in Arizona. The Senate polling, every Senate poll that comes out of Arizona has got Martha McSally, the uh, appointed Republican incumbent, um, in trouble out there. And Democrats are, are particularly excited about the Senate candidate they have. But th- what is that? That's that's that college educated, you know, sort of professional class white voter demographic that for decades in Arizona has voted for Republican candidates there. And that in the Trump era has just en masse just defected from the Trump Republican Party. And, I, and there's a tension there, I think, because to win a state like Wisconsin or if he's going to pick off a of Minnesota or Michigan or any of those sort of Midwest states, Trump's leaning into a message that I think very plausibly for every vote it saves for him in Wisconsin could cost him a vote in Arizona. And it could, it could extend beyond Arizona. I mean, we have competitive polling in North Carolina right now. It, it, it could cost him in North Carolina. I think Texas is, you know, I, I don't want to go there saying it. You know, I, I think Texas is a reach for Democrats. Definitely. But you know, Metro areas, Dallas, Houston, you know, a huge democratic gains in that state in 2018. It's there's probably enough offsetting there to get Trump a win by a couple of points. But I mean, I think that's what you're talking about for a Republican pad in Texas in 2020 is a couple of points. And, and again, if, if the message, if the Republican message is alienating Maricopa County, 
it's alienating, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth. It's alienating, you know, Fort Bend. I mean, it's 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 a problem in big parts of Texas, too, and other states and places like that. Now, I wanted to get your perspective, Steve, on a, on a couple of narratives that we've heard coming out of or swirling around the campaigns in the last couple of weeks. Um, one is essentially emanating from uh, the, the Trump contingent, essentially a suggestion that there might be, you know, this groundswell of unprecedented levels of black support for the Republican candidate for president. I, I wonder what they're talking about, what evidence they're pointing to, if that seems at all credible. Um, it, it's something I've, I've said in other contexts, but I don't think I've ever said out loud on the podcast is at different points, it seemed possible to me that, you know, if the election were held today, <laughs> not necessarily today, today, but just in general, at some point in the past, that the president could probably outperform the mark he was at before amongst African-American voters. Um, I do think that, that there does seem to be a genuine um, sort of disconnect between like establishment or elite opinion uh, around a lot of issues that black people are imagined to care about and what I seem to encounter on the ground anecdotally when I'm talking to people. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but another narrative pertains to reporting I've seen around or at least speculation from, and perhaps this is another like team Trump narrative. Um, the internals that are perhaps scaring Team Biden to the center. And that's that's one way to sort of talk about it. But specifically when it comes to the protest movements and some of the really intense um, instances of violent sort of widespread protesting that have popped up in different places at different times. And the fact that Team Biden seemed to sort of scramble to try to push a particular message a lot more vocally uh, about their opposition to the violence. And again, even scrambling the jets to get into Wisconsin um, because Trump was just there and seemed to do well and they felt like they needed to do something. Um, what, what do you make of those two, uh, two narratives? Are those credible? What, where are they coming from? Um, and should people pay any attention to them? Yeah, I mean, on the on the black vote and, and I guess just more broadly, kind of the non-white vote. I mean, there's I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think one is wherever it lands, Trump is going to get clobbered among black voters and he's going to get clobbered among non-white. Basically, just anything that falls under that umbrella in any exit poll, he's going to get clobbered there, too. That said, um, he looks like he's on pace to do better and maybe significantly better um, than he did in 2016. And it, and it does seem like it's kind of one of these ironies where um, there has not been a presidency in sort of our, our, I would say, our lifetimes, modern era of politics, 1980 beyond, whatever you want to um, define it as. I don't think there's been a presidency where race has been as central to the news coverage and storytelling around the presidency as this one. Mm -hmm. Movement that you're seeing in polls away from the president is among white voters. Mm -hmm. Trump won the white vote in 2016 by 20 points. It was 59 to 39. If you average together all of the polls that are out there right now, Trump still leads the white vote, but it's down to seven points. So that's the movement. That's the difference between, you know, Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote by two 
and Joe Biden leading in the polls right now by seven and a half, eight points, wherever exactly it lands in a given day. The difference is white voters. And then when you look inside the white vote, there's some movement. You know, Trump is still winning big among non-college whites. He's not winning quite as big right now. Um, And then it's that college plus white demographic where, you know, Trump was able to, depending on which exit poll, you know, you looked at, Trump was able to hold his own in 2016, I would say. And now he's just getting absolutely slaughtered, just absolutely killed with that demographic. Um, so that's been the slippage for it. And again, white, the white vote is basically seven out of every 10 votes in this country are, are, are white folks. So when you lose as much ground as Trump has, that's going to cost you in the polls. Now, he's been able to offset it a little, I stress a little, with gains he's made uh, among non-white voters. It's more Hispanic voters. I think he lost the Hispanic vote, I believe, by 38 points in 2016 to Hillary Clinton. Again, if you average them together right now, it's sitting at about 30. So you know, he's still down. He's still down substantially, but he's down you know, almost 10 points less than he lost that by in 2016. And there's been significant, the one place where there's been significant growth for him is Florida among Hispanic voters and really much more specifically among Cuban-American voters in Florida, who, as you know, are just a very influential voting block in Florida. And Florida is an interesting state because when you look at, we had one, a, a Marist NBC poll that came out this week. It had Florida tied at 48-48. You know, we got Biden winning by nine in Pennsylvania. I said we had about five in uh, Arizona. The one state where Trump has found an almost perfect offset for the loss of white support is Florida. Because 20% of the electorate in Florida is, is Hispanic. In our poll, he's leading the Hispanic vote in Florida, powered by the Cuban-American vote. It's 50 to 46, Trump over Biden in our poll, among Hispanic voters in Florida. So he's lost... He's lost that, you know, 15 points of white support in Florida that he's losing everywhere else. But he's he's gone from losing the Hispanic vote in Florida by 27 points in 2016 to leading it by four wow. in our poll. That's that. And that's the Cuban. That's primarily not exclusively, but it's primarily a Cuban-American vote. that's doing that. But what that results in is Florida looks like it always looks like it's, it's, it's a toss up between the two parties. It's the best polling news Trump has had in a while. Then you, you flip it around to a state like Arizona that also has a substantial Hispanic population. And what you see there are Trump's made some gains among Hispanic voters, but they're more negligible and they're not nearly enough to offset the gains that Biden's made with those college educated white voters in the in the Phoenix suburbs. So in most states, he's made some gains with non-white voters, but he needs to either make have far fewer defections from white voters or he needs to make much bigger gains with non-white voters to offset it. The only state where he's got the balance right that I'm seeing it right now um, is in Florida. But yeah, it, it, it does look like on the whole, um, at least all the polling we're seeing right now, you know, September 2020, uh, on the whole, he's going to have more non-white support um, than he had certainly in 2016, I think potentially than a lot of Republicans have had. Black vote is, is interesting. It wouldn't take a ton, like I'm saying, if he could get it to 13%. 14%, if he could get somewhere in there. Um, wouldn't take a ton for him to be at one of the best levels for a Republican since 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, he will still be losing it at that point by, you know, 70 points or something. Um, but it may be, you know, irony of ironies, given, you know, um, sort of the, the stories that have been told the last four years, he may have one of the higher numbers for a Republican. I could see that happening um, mm-hmm. just based on the we're seeing in the polling. 
And away from the demographics, the with respect to the other issue in terms of the, the internals that may have been sort of scaring Team Biden related to the protests, um, is there is there any truth to that, that they may be seeing dynamics that give them some concern uh, about that issues there um, being sort of materially significant and perhaps Trump's law and order message like really resonating with voters? Yeah, I can't say I've been privy to any any internal polls from them on that. I can only say um, the reporting from our our NBC reporters around the Biden campaign on the Biden campaign, you know, was that the campaign viewed it as a potential issue. Mm -hmm. They weren't sure politics of it. They certainly saw that Trump was, you know, playing it up. The Republicans were playing this up at their convention. You had, you know, what was taking place on the ground in Wisconsin. Um, and, and there was a strong feeling there of um, we have nothing to lose. This is Biden campaign through our reporting. Nothing to lose, everything to gain, um, you know, by going out there, sending Biden in, um, making the speech that he made. And, you know, the, the reporting that we've had is that they feel very encouraged by the numbers since then. I, the public numbers, you know, we had the um, Marquette Law Poll come out this week. That's kind of the, the best poll in Wisconsin. You know, the Marquette Law Poll had it at four, had Biden's lead at four points in Wisconsin. Um, it, it, that's down a little bit from where Marquette's had it earlier in the summer, although I would note it, it's not because Trump's building support. You know, Trump's at 43 percent in their poll. He's basically been around 43 percent in their polling. It's, it's that Biden is down to 47 percent. Some more people have moved to undecided um, in Wisconsin, maybe hmm. taking a bit of step, you know, off of uh, uh, off of Biden. But I, I think. So far, um, there's been a lot of you've all heard it. You know, Trump folks saying this is this is our ticket to carrying Wisconsin, putting Minnesota in play, whatever. Pennsylvania even you know comes up. The numbers so far are not showing that movement. Um, again, maybe it's something that takes time. Maybe it takes a situation like Kenosha remaining a situation, um, you know, for weeks, for months. We'll see what happens. Um, but the numbers so far are numbers the Biden folks are feeling good about now compared to a week or two ago. Yeah. And some of those, if I'm not mistaken, um, that are, have been taken more recently in Wisconsin and, and maybe even nationally have given Biden higher marks about dealing yeah. with uh, the protests and uh, criminal justice issues than Trump. I mean, I, there's a. I I presume that I'm in uh, 75 different bubbles all at once. Uh, and one of the <laughs> bubbles that I feel like I'm in um, is that uh, people are like, hey, wow, you know, this this the looting and the crime stuff. That's it. That is going to be the thing that reelects Trump. Question is, if it's going to be a landslide or not. And um, I am, as New York residents, very concerned by a lot of the degradations of New York and the rise in crime. There's more shootings and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I say that as zero fan of certainly the New York Police Union, which should be uh, sent on a very long, long boat ride to a place far away. But um, uh, I, I think that it, at least it hasn't materialized in anything we can see uh, polling wise. This hasn't there isn't a landslide of people or a, a measurable amount of the electorate so far that are like, oh, crap. You know, uh, I don't want to elect President Antifa because the streets are on fire um, so far. But you're right to point out. I mean, I remember four years ago this week was when uh, uh, Gary Johnson had his Aleppo moment. And I uh, <laughs> made the mistake of um, 
writing for the next, you know, 10 days, like, hey, still hasn't shown up at the polls, still hasn't shown up at the polls. It eventually showed up in the polls. It wasn't just that, of course, there's a bunch of other stuff, too. But like stuff does take time to digest. All that said, I just haven't seen evidence yet that the bubble uh, conclusion is true. Yeah. And one, the one thing is just that, and that when I said earlier, this kind of sits in my mind is the, the problem with polling the large white working class states. Um, Marquette Law Poll, I mentioned, you know, they were my, I thought in 2016, and this is, I say this not meaning any knock on the, on the Marquette Law Poll because I love them, but 2016, they were polling Wisconsin more regularly than anybody else, and they are the gold standard in that state. And every two weeks or so, they're coming out with a new poll. And I, I mean, I, I knew if Trump's going to win, Wisconsin's going to be a part of that equation. So I'm just looking for the poll in 2016. Okay, here's the one point race. Here's the tie. Wow, they got, and it was consistently Trump by six, excuse me, Clinton by six, Clinton mm. by five. It was never popping up. And they months, were already- months and months and months, people. I went and looked at it recently, right. actually prompted by Camille, because Camille's like, ah, yeah, Trump's going to win Wisconsin. You watch. Um, just private, privately. Um, <laughs> that's not, uh, that's just not jo- really what I said. I'm just asking. Joshing back and I forth. I don't make predictions. Uh, and so I'm like, uh, I, you know, I looking at the fundamentals, I was like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. But then I went back and looked at exactly that. And it's not just that the polling average was X. It's that if you go down on the real clear list, you just go months and months and months and months and months and months. And Trump didn't lead in a single damn poll. Not one, not even one. It's crazy. And and the thing is, when I say like, you know, pollsters trying to learn the lesson from 2016, they missed white working class voters and they made all these changes. Marquette, one of the changes you'll hear about constantly is, ah, they've learned they have to, it's called waiting by education. And it basically means being aware of the white person you're talking to is either a college educated white person or non-college and making sure you've got those two samples represented in your, in your poll. Marquette was already doing that in 2016. That, so when I say I, 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 I I pause a little bit, a little, and I, I I don't want to overstate it, but I don't want to understate it. When I see, Oh, you know, Biden's up for still in Wisconsin, not a story still, you know, I, there is part of me that just, it, it it can only be answered by having the election. It can only be answered by by seeing what the results are. But there's part of me that just wonders, you know, are we missing a, a, a white working class component here? And you'll only know when you have the election and they show up and vote. I mean, enthusiasm and turnout are were a big part of the story in the previous couple of elections. What's the best barometer of where enthusiasm lies? If you tell me that there has been, you know, sort of, steady erosion of support among a certain section of voters um, and among another section of voters that he's slowly, gradually been making inroads there. Like, what does that tell me? Does that suggest that, they're, that these are people who are more likely to be sufficiently excited about him that they go up and show up anyways? Are the people who dislike him, do they, do they hate him with the passion of a thousand th- sons? Like, what, what gives us an indication of how much people care and whether or not that's actually enough to drive them to the polls or make them ensure that they get their ballot um, mailed back in. I think 2018 was a big clue. I mean, 115 million votes cast in a midterm election. That number, you know, normally is 85 million or 90 million. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost, you know, you had about 130 million in the presidential election and and it barely went down off that for a midterm. Mm -hmm. And, and the, there was more 
enthusiasm on the Democratic side uh, overall, mm-hmm. but there was enthusiasm on the Republican side too. You know, I mean, again, they, they, to pick off the you know, Tennessee and Republicans, it's not a huge deal for a Republican to win a Senate race in Tennessee or Missouri or Indiana, but it, it, it was the thing that made it a little different. There was enough Republican enthusiasm amidst this just profound Democratic enthusiasm that Republicans were able to oust Democratic incumbents uh, in those states, which, you know, I did spoke to some uh, some energy on there. So I, I have no doubt to me, it's when we talk about this college white demographic, um, again, it's a group that Democrat, there was this famous line from Chuck Schumer, and I'm sure he's been haunted by it for four years, about a month before the 2016 election, he was asked about, is he worried about Pennsylvania? And he said he was not worried about Pennsylvania because for every vote the Democrats lost in Southwest Pennsylvania, that's blue collar white, for every vote they lost there, they were getting two in the suburbs of Philadelphia. That's what he said. As it turned out, they lost a ton in Southwest Pennsylvania and elsewhere in the state. And while they did well in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, they won those counties of five counties right outside Philadelphia. The margin was nine. They were expecting 20. They were expecting 25. They got nine. Mm -hmm. Trump held his own there. In 2018, in places like that, you know, Republicans didn't hold their own. In 2018, all the things happened in places like that that were forecasted by Democrats in 2016. Um, To me, the burden is on Trump and the burden is on Republicans to show me how they've reversed any of that. And it hasn't just continued since 2018 because it's popping up in the polling. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of, that's where my mind is expecting that. But again, it's a question of, if you just look at the, um, you look at the demographics, census numbers from a state like um, Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania, you do see a pool of people who could vote if they wanted to, but so far haven't voted, mm-hmm. who are disproportionately white working class. Mm-hmm. And is there just something about Trump, something about the atmosphere, whatever, that Trump is able to squeeze even more out of that than he got in 2016. Because nobody thought he was going to win it by 40. He won that demographic by about 40 points nationally in 2016. Nobody thought it was going to be that high. And the turnout numbers were much higher in those you know, parts of the state than people expected. You know, could he get it even higher? I, I just I just don't rule it. I'm not saying I expect it, but that's that's a variable I just don't rule out. And if, if it were to come to fruition, it could scramble things a little. I mean, I'm thinking about um, impeachment and Russian collusion uh, and the degree to which those things have seemingly been non-factors in the sort of Biden assault on Trump. You got you got to refresh my impeachment. (laughs) Nixon, what was this? Yeah, the the impeachment. Was Trump impeached? Donald Trump. (laughs) This is this is 45 years ago, so I can understand why you're. It's like they actually had me. They had me host. I was hosting a daily podcast on the, following the, the Trump impeachment. And that feels like it was Eons so long ago. Yeah. Uh, Moynihan, yeah. Moynihan literally had an impeachment show on cable yeah. television. I was, That's right. I was on it. Yeah. We right. did. We did a grueling 10 or 11 hour day, like making, making content in real time <laughs> and watching all of those hearings. It's totally pointless, apparently. Well, I mean, I, judge it by what the Democrats chose to put in their convention. I mean, that is not a thing. You know, there was no. Here's tonight's primetime address from Adam Schiff reminding you all about, you know, <laughs> here's Barry Nadler for an hour. I mean, if the Democrats thought, you know, that that it had political punch right now, they would have showcased it. The decision not to, I think, you know, speaks volumes. I, I don't think they look at it as something that that hurt them or that cost them. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but I don't think they look at it as something that, that has much resonance with, you know, with the public right now, they put out, um, you know, I think judged by the convention, what they think is effective. And I, and then I think to your point about, you know, getting that speech from Biden, getting him into Wisconsin, I think, and especially because of the events in Wisconsin, but I do think they had that, the doubt they had after their convention was, Ooh, did we, did we talk enough about that? Should we have, and I, that Biden's speech, I think, was an attempt to try, sort of address that was the one kind of vulnerability I think they thought after the convention, maybe they left themselves. But but no, I mean, the, the impeachment just it, it's just a non it's it's wild. It's a complete uh, I guess if you think back to 2000, it's like you know, the Republicans impeached Clinton and, and you know George Bush didn't want to in 2000 running against Gore. Bush never wanted to talk about impeachment. But he wanted to to refer to the conduct that led to the impeachment. So he I was, mean, they would use the phrase, we're going to restore dignity to the White right. House. Mm-hmm. You didn't need the impeachment to, you know, I mean, he's, you know, Clinton messed around in the Oval Office and I won't, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a, I, a different, different set of, you know, uh, cities there, I guess. You referenced the um, April kind of high watermark for Trump uh, that uh seem to be associated with the coronavirus daily briefings and, and, uh, and various things. Um, have there been any blips on the radar since then? Like, you know, usually we have a convention and we have a bounce and we had like a tiny little baby bounce that went away immediately on both sides, I think, or something close to it. Have there been blips on the radar? And, um, if, uh, if not, um, what, do you think that that might indicate us to us about the next 50 days of the difficulty in, um, you know, changing people's minds, given that we know who Trump is now, like there isn't a surprise. Like if there was a new access Hollywood tape, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, there's a new Bob Woodward, there could be three new Bob Woodward right. books about different topics. I'm not sure that's really going to change anyone's mind, but, but also about Joe Biden, like there's not, it's been around for 47 years, as the Republicans kept reminding us correctly. Mm. Um, it's like there's not a lot of surprises there. Um, looking, I mean, what do we have left? We have three debates, mm-hmm. right? Um, do you forecast, uh, have you like built into your own thinking, like a discount on your usual uh, concept of the importance of those debates? Or how do you look at this kind of blip radar? Thing? Yeah. And will we even have debates, Steve? You got to handicap this for me yeah. because I keep hearing people tell me or at least say publicly that no, no, you shouldn't debate. You shouldn't do it. This president doesn't deserve a debate. What is going on here? That was, that was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Speaker of the House said Biden shouldn't debate. But then he did. I got to say he immediately came out and he everything that Biden himself has said about this is that he wants to debate and he's looking forward to it. I, 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 I believe there'll be um, there'll be debates, I believe, by Zeke for it. Trump certainly is, too. So I, I think it's going to happen. Um, I do notice the Trump people seem to be putting an awful lot on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I remember in 2016, after the third debate, there were articles written. And I probably did segments on the air saying that if you if you took all of the snap debate polls from the three Clinton Trump debates, um, it was the most lopsided set of polls you'd ever seen from presidential debates. Clinton had cleaned his clock according to the who won the debate polling afterwards. Um, these were, these were not close, you know, looking at it that way. Um, you see what that was worth um, for Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. you know, in 2016. Um, but that I, I, I say that only because um, I hear the Trump people 
talking and, and seeming to invest a lot of hope in these debates right now. And I say to myself, well, if there's a world where Donald Trump or whatever set of circumstances can beat Joe Biden in the debates to the degree that Hillary Clinton appeared to beat Donald Trump, meaning like, do they have the first debate and we get the poll the next day and 62 percent say Trump won it and 24 percent say Biden won it? Because I think that was the spread with Clinton and Trump in that final debate or one of those one of those debates. Those two numbers sit in my head for some reason. Um, you know, if it didn't move the needle for Clinton in 2016, is it going to move the needle for Trump, even if he were able to get that, you know, kind of performance? I mean, I, I think there's, there's subtext to all of this, I think, obviously, is in, in, say subtext, Trump says the subtext out loud all the time. Um, I, I think there's, there is a sense, maybe a wishful sense around the Trump people that, you know, Biden is going to have a moment, a bad senior moment, you know, on the stage. And, and I think back to 1984, Reagan-Mondale, first Reagan-Mondale debate. The only thing that went wrong for Ronald Reagan in this otherwise textbook re-election campaign was he went blank in the first presidential debate, and he was 73 years old. And there were all these, you know, is that Ronald Reagan losing it? And it was Mondale. I I remember interviewing Mondale a few years ago. He lost 49 states. Um, He he would have lost all 50, but Minnesota, his home state, went from about like 2,000 votes. And I said, did you ever think you could beat Ronald Reagan? And he said, I did for one night. And it was the night after the first debate hmm. because he left the stage. No, he watched it. He saw what everybody saw. And he, he had the thought, you know, this, this country won't reelect the president. It doesn't. So anyway, I mean, but, you know, Reagan was able to clear that up. He had the next debate. He had that great line about not exploiting his opponent's youth and inexperience. And, and the rest is history. <laughs> but I get the sense that the Trump people um, maybe think that's what's going to happen. And I just, I, the, the one thing I say is like, the, the the closest parallel we've seen so far to a Biden-Trump debate, just in terms of, of, of Biden having to be in a one-on-one setting for a sustained period. If you remember, just as COVID was setting in, there was a Sanders-Biden debate. I think it was on CNN, and it was a, just the two of them in an empty studio, 90 minutes, something like that. Sanders was not going hard at Biden, but, you know, Biden had to, it wasn't one of those debates where he could just hide and every 30 minutes, you know, say, say you know, quick thing. Right. It's the just approximation. He was fine. Um, yeah, I'm not saying he was he was dazzling. I'm not saying this was, but I I think if you come into a debate ahead seven eight points nationally, and the verdict is you did fine, um, that's a win. And if your opponent and his folk, folks around him are setting the bar as like this guy can't last ninety minutes, this guy's going to go blank, you know, and the verdict is fine, then it's a big win, mm-hmm. huge win. Um, so. I just, I, I wonder, I, I get why if the Trump folks are down, I get why they're pointing to the debates, but you know, that's um, not quite sure what, what, what yeah. we need to have for them to get what they're hoping for. I mean, if I'm looking for, for an analog to, you know, a Trump Biden matchup, it's probably more like those unguarded moments where he's being asked a question that's a bit more hostile from some lay person in the audience who's a little a little nastier than the average media person is going to be when they ask, when they're accusatory and they suggest something nasty has happened between him and his son, something uh, unseemly. And in those moments, like Biden tends to respond in pretty sharp ways, which I mean, maybe that's precisely what you want in a response to a Donald Trump kind of coming after you in a guttural way. Um, But it's also those tend to be the moments where he's sort of, at least the best self uh, in a lot of instances, which 
I don't know if that matters, you know, against Donald Trump. We'll we'll have to see. But it does seem like a relevant analog. Uh, you uh, brought up earlier Obama's and uh, George W. Bush's reelection. You know, they were kind of close at the time or they felt close and then they won as incumbents. Are those the ones that you look to most for like historical analogy or stuff to pull from and think about when looking at Trump's reelection or are there other ones? How do you process history through that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, at 2004, there's two that I kind of look at, um, you know, in every election is its own. Like I said, this, this one sort of, if you look at the mo- the six most recent incumbent presidents seeking reelection, it's just, it's three very neat categories of two each. It's Reagan and Clinton. They were coasting. They didn't have to sweat. It's Obama and W. They had the tough reelection races. And then it's Carter and Bush. And they were by this point doomed, um, you know, more or less. Um, and, and, and lost big. And Trump is somewhere between where Carter and Bush were and somewhere where Obama and, and, and W were. So it, it is, it looks like it's going to be a new model. But what the, the two that stick in my head are the, the W one from 2004, because, you know, and you guys know this. I, I, I talk to people in their 20s who don't remember the 2004 election. And I try to tell them what George W. Bush represented to the left in 2004. Um, and, and this just driving, mobilizing passion that you saw at that time to get George W. Bush out of office. And it, what it resulted in, among other things, an extremely high, at that point, an extremely high turnout um, 2004 election. And it just such a sea change. In 2000, I remember Bush running against Gore, and you saw these bumper stickers that said Gush and Bore. They were treated as just these interchangeable, <laughs> empty, you know, it doesn't matter, my God, you know, mm-hmm. everything's going great in the country. And by 2004, we're at war. We've had 9-11 and it was just high. And, and, and the bases, you know, the culture war was really starting to rage. Gay marriage, Bush campaign was doing. All. So it was just like, um, I look at that one as a bit of a model where, and it came down to Ohio. It, you know, it came down to, you know, Bush won the popular vote by about three points, but about 100,000 votes in Ohio. If he didn't get those, he loses. You know, electoral college votes to carry. Um, so I think that those dynamics stick with me. But then I say, I say, like, I spend so much time talking about it from the angle of are we missing the Trump voters in the Midwest? Are we missing the white working class in the scenario where Trump can eke something out like W? And occasionally I have the thought of are we missing it the other way? Are, are we missing 1980? That's the one I think of. And then I say Carter, you know, I have to remind myself that Carter ended up losing 44 states, um, but it didn't look like it was going to be 44 until it happened. Um, and it was really the last week of that campaign when the floodgates opened. Carter had the terrible approval rating, but I, I always have to remember, you know, Reagan was seen as, you know, too extreme, too trigger happy, you know, too much of a cold warrior, all of these things. And in that last week, there was it, it just, there was such a desire to just be done with Carter. It all went Reagan's way in the end. Now, nobody, Biden's not winning 44 states. He's not getting anything close to that. But does this result in, 2020s version of this is the best a Democrat could possibly do, meaning sweeps the Midwest states, gets Arizona, gets Florida, gets North Carolina. I, I, I toy with that in my mind, too, that like if we miss it, the polls move three points more favorable to Trump. He can pull out the Electoral College again. But if they move three points the other way, or two points, point and a half the other way from where they are right now, I mean, you're looking at you're looking at the biggest Democratic win in, in decades. 
Yeah. I want I want to pull you away from the the horse race a little bit and and kind of take advantage of your deep understanding of you know U.S. history and elections and and politics broadly and get your appraisal of just kind of the, the current moment we find ourselves in because the country has some pretty profound challenges obviously um, not on the not just in the immediate sense with the pandemic it's fighting and the the already manifested. Um, economic challenges, but it's very likely we'll have more severe um, economic challenges coming down the road here um, for various reasons. Um, and obviously, there's a great deal of sort of social upheaval. Um, there's even like a revolutionary fervor, um, the likes of which you know I I haven't seen in my own lifetime in American politics, like actual political violence. I wonder what periods you look at historically when you're thinking of when you're looking for um points of reference um and the degree to which you know you feel like obviously we're in uncharted territory but how uncharted is that territory and to the extent you have particular concerns about the future um how how worried are you uh, about the country I, I talked to some people and they believe the country is in not just the fragile state, but like, you know, near a real breaking point. Um, and, you know, even the, the possibility that, you know, a, a lot of people who imagine a Biden win is the best thing right now, um, imagine that he can kind of bring the country together. Um, but I know people who are sufficiently pessimistic that they don't think that is likely to be the case either. How are you thinking about all of this? What's your appraisal of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I wish I had a, a, a jolt of optimism here for you. Um, I, I, I struggle to see how it, it changes in a dramatic, I mean, look, there's, there's COVID itself. I think, I, I, I guess the optimism is I think a year from now, God willing, we're on the other side of it and we're hmm. moving forward with that. So that, I mean, that alone is a, is a, would be a huge positive. Um, but beyond that, just when you, when you talk more about, you know, our, our politics, our political culture, I think we talked about this a little bit. I was on probably about a year ago. Um, and it was the question I always got. I wrote this, this book on um, the 90s that was really, it culminates in the red-blue map. You know, the 2000 election was the first time we really got this red-blue map defined. And it's, it's changed a little bit, but we've been in this red-blue war, you know, for a generation now. And the question I always got when I was, when I was out doing the book events for that was, well, okay, how do we change it? You know, how do we get beyond this? How do you get past it? And the, the thing that just keeps coming back to me is just, I think we are as human beings hardwired for this stuff. We are hardwired to think tribal, I mean, take, take it outside of politics and just think about your lives, think about your world, think about how you develop as something as simple as, as a rooting interest in a sports team. It's like we are hardwired or, or, you know, you're in elementary school and you have a rivalry with the classroom next door. These things just come naturally to us to identify with a group, to identify against another group. Mm -hmm. I think we're just hardwired for tribalism. And what concerns me and what makes this to me, I think, a little bit different than anything we've seen in our history before is the evolution of media and technology. And I think they have evolved in a way that is just maximally conducive to the tribal instinct. Um, and so I think now it is, just, I'm hardly the first person to make the observation, but everybody can create their own self-reinforcing media ecosystem now. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's not just the media eco. I mean, it's just you turn on your phone and instantly within five seconds of turning on your phone, you can be on Facebook or you can be on Twitter or you can be on your text thread with, with like, uh, you know, 20 like-minded family and friends. Um, and you have learned who in the last hour you weren't on your phone, you're supposed to hate now. You, you know, mm. you didn't know about an hour ago. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, I see, I see that what I'm describing, I feel like I see it everywhere. I see it in big, obvious ways. I see it in subtle ways. Um, and I just, I don't know the way around that because it's just, if we're hardwired for it, oh, it's so hard to resist, right? I mean, everybody, you can, you can say it logically, and I think we all get drawn into it in, certain, in, in different ways. Um, and there are so many incentives. Once, once that's kind of been figured out, there are just so many incentives um, for everyone to, to kind of go with it. And, and so I just, I don't know, tell me how to get around that. And then and I have your answer. Maybe a follow-up would be, uh, you know, we're living in a pretty remarkable um, journalism self-appraisal moment in the wake of George Floyd. We had Wesley Lowry on the program uh, here talking about his idea about kind of moral objectivity um, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, replacing the traditional ideas of, about uh, uh, journalistic objectivity. Um, do you think that um, elite newspapers, for example, to keep it out of cable news for the moment, um, which is kind of a different beast anyways, but, um, and also it's easier for you to talk about and for us to talk about, but like, uh, is the way that the media has responded to the Trump era um, specifically, but also to this particular challenge, which I think is kind of evident to everybody. Everyone acknowledges about that what you say is true, I think. I don't really know very many people who don't on some level understand that Twitter or social media is making people kind of monstrous. It's making them mob up, that the the pull to the tribe is so strong constantly and it's not uh, improving people's manners. Um, and not also improving the political discussion or like the policy discussion, let alone. I mean, remember policy? That was fun when we used to talk <laughs> about that stuff. Um, so everyone recognizes this on some level. Um, and, you know, there was a moment after the 2016 election where a lot of journalistic outlets were like, you know, hey, maybe we should rethink how we cover certain communities or how we just approach politics um, in a broad sense. Um, do you think they've leaned in the right direction um, and, and specifically in the last couple of months? Or do you think they've, they've, they're kind of like, uh, you know, when you were, what's the whole thing? Like you're in a, uh, like you're in a skid in your car and like you turn into the skid and somehow you're going to ma magically write yourself. Are they turning into the skid uh, now? Because it kind of feels like that to me. So it's a bit of a leading question. But what's your assessment of that? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, look, and, and again, I, I, I guess gear my comment here this is this is broadly aimed um and and you know because i'm 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 in the media and I, I i feel like i should start by saying just i i see a lot of and i i mean this genuinely um i there are there i see a lot of not just good but exceptionally good reporting out there mm -hmm. um that that is beneficial that is useful that is, is done the way it should be done and i think benefits Everybody who reads it is, is, is healthy for our, for our society. I, I see that work being done. I see a lot of that work being done. For, um, forcefully agree. As, as someone who is often critical of the industry and even at publications that I'm very critical of in, the, in recent weeks, I've seen phenomenal stuff. And it is. And it's, it, I think sometimes the, the burden there ought to be, 
shouldn't be, but is, unfortunately, I think the burden sometimes right now falls on the consumer to go out and seek that out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if you do, you you will be richly rewarded for it because it's there. Um, My my broad concern in in general um, is that everything gets built around Trump. In it almost inevitable, when I say we're hardwired for tribalism, I, I, I think when you when you have um, you know a president um, like Donald Trump, we've just never had a, a president like him before who is in the media's face every day. Certainly, um, it it becomes um, there 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 is at least a a, a a tendency there. I think that that some might. Um, fall into where it, it just it becomes everything becomes a manifestation of that. I worry about that. I worry about seeing that, um, and I, I worry about um, the challenge. I think of separating any given issue from Trump versus whoever. Um, coronavirus comes to mind. Like I, I will, um, I'm interested. I think, in, and I think a lot of people are in questions about the coronavirus that are. Questions that occur to me when I when I look at some of the numbers on it, you know, it's like it it looks like people who get it and are hospitalized with it now are dying at lower rates than they were when they were getting it and being hospitalized with it in in April. Much, yeah. And and to me, that is a totally non-politician related question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think this is I don't think this is a phenomenon of like, well, because the blue state is doing this or the red state is doing, I think this is happening in red states and happening in blue states and it's happening regardless of what party controls the government. I I think it has nothing to do with that. And I think it's the kind of thing there's just what I worry about, again, just kind of generally speaking, um, I worry about that kind of thing, whether it's on COVID or or take an equivalent of that on some other vitally important topic. I worry about that kind of getting, getting lost or being subsumed to just you know, all things Trump. There was a, uh, an early period of the virus where you could sort of see the foreign policy coverage was like, okay, he likes the Brazilian guy, right? Okay. Brazil's messing up. So Trump fan, you know, uh, foreign leaders are having the worst of it. And it was not very scientifically done. Um, and, uh, and, very frustrating as a consumer. And I've expressed that uh, here many times. I won't bore everyone with it again, but like, um, you know, we're all self-interested to figure this stuff out. I have to fly to California tomorrow morning, right? That's going to affect my pod because of course we have pods now for our five-year-olds, you know? So like, how long do I quarantine? Can I get a rapid test? Um, And, uh, and to seek out that information um, which does exist, and there is be- there are people working on it well, both within journalistic institutions and very interestingly outside of them as well, who are getting at it. But man, do you have to take a machete to the thicket? Um, and it is frustrating because I'm so sick of that thicket. Like, I don't need to hear even uh, you know people like uh, inject it straight into my veins when everyone when anyone talks about Bill De Blasio being an incompetent boob because he is. And I want to hear it. I just do. It's good for it's good for my tribalism to hear it. But even then, like that's not affecting your question. It's not affecting the the variance in uh, testing uh, positive testing rates in Madrid and New York City to throw out one thing that I just happened to read a pretty good uh, uh, Twitter uh, uh, thread on uh, today. That's the stuff. And in so little of the conversation 
um, is about that uh, that ambient chatter. And I guess maybe to your point, Steve, it's like um, it does put the onus on all of us to go out there and do the extra work. Um, but I wish and I lament that I don't uh, have that sense of trust when uh, in institutions that I used to to like, you know, cut through it for me. Give me the Reader's Digest version of it. That reference will soon lack any kind of meaning to most people, probably not even to you guys. But um, uh, and like, let me know what's going on here about the stuff that matters, which are those kind of variances and how how uh, uh, this policy change or this absolutely non-policy related change is affecting the way that we should think about that. Um, and I, I have less of that sense of trust uh, at a time when I absolutely need answers two questions to make like kind of important decisions in the next, I don't know, 10 days. It's not a question. <laughs> no, but I, I, it's fun. I, I was looking this week. I think there was the polling from, I want to say it was Gallup. Um, but I was looking at numbers this week. It is trust in the media numbers. Not, I mean, obviously um, it's not new that the numbers are low, but, but it's getting the, the picture just in terms of public trust is, is, is getting lower. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it comes from multiple directions. You know, one side thinks it's too much of, of, of this way. And the That's other right. side thinks, Oh no, it's too much of that way. You know, people are, and, and, and then that gets into the whole question of, you know, people are, are kind of choosing to create their own, their own environments and then, and then reacting to it or, or um, yeah, it's, I mean, again, it's like, I, I grew up at the tail end of cable television was becoming a thing. When I was a kid, I grew up at the tail end of the, you know, antenna on top of the TV and everybody got the same three channels. And, um, and there were, I, you know, I, I can romanticize that because there were probably, there were a million things that were wrong with only having three channels and, and you got to probably too narrow of a perspective with that. But I think, um, it, it, this isn't even cable news. This is, this is, I'm, I'm talking here about like, I'm really pr- primarily talking about social media, I think, because I think that's the thing that is just instantly, I pulled out my phone here, just instantly available to, to everybody. And I think, um, just, um, instantly kind of gives you, okay, that's the perspective I'm supposed to have. So my uh, most important question is you mentioned that your 20 family members that you're on a text string or a WhatsApp string. Um, how many times a day does one member of your family ask you who's going to win the presidential (laughs) election? I'm, I'm not Steve Kornacki. Right. I'm not up at the big board. I, I don't know the name of that damn county. And I get these <laughs> questions all the time. I'm like, dude, who, what, why would you ever ask me? But like, you're one of the, you know, five to 10 people that one might ask. So do you get this five times a day or 50? It is, I get it all the time, but it is, it's also what you're saying is like, I, I mean, everybody is so, this is what I say. The, the turnout might be 150 million people this year, which is just off the charts. Everybody is into this. I was I was on a family, one of these family Zoom calls a week or two ago, and you know you're, you're looking at the screen, and there's like eight boxes on the screen: aunts and uncles and cousins, and each one is taking two minutes. You know, just taking turns being a pundit for two minutes. Oh no! And I said to them, I said, guys, I'm on Morning Joe again. It's like everybody's in a box. Everybody's, you know, it's like that's what our family call is, you know. I wonder, uh, I'm thinking about the, we talked a little bit about the culture and society broadly and, and tribalism, but I wonder about like the future of the parties. Like when you, when you look at them, like where the intellectual or, or perhaps just the power centers are, because maybe they're not terribly intellectual power centers. 
um, but where they are. Um, like I look at, you know, the a potential Biden presidency, and I try to imagine what the party looks like four years later. And considering the degree to which the Biden campaign is largely about less about ideology and more about, or at least not about his own. It's more about like what Donald Trump's ideology is, why it's bad and why we need to get, you know, back to something more normal um, is essentially the prescription there. Like, I don't know what, what Bidenism is. And I don't know that there is a, a sort of natural political constituency within the democratic party that moves in that direction that has sort of a young, um, acolytes who are there to sort of be the standard bearers of that. Um, even when I look at um, Harris, you know, Harris is someone who many people have thought of as a moderate, but when she was running in the primaries, she was, you know, pretty strident with respect to a number of the social issues that are generally associated with a lot of the more progressive candidates. She, and for a little while there, said she wanted to outlaw um, private insurance and have Medicare for all. She seems like someone who could essentially go any particular way. And the energy in the party really does seem to be with Bernie Sanders. And I don't know if there is another power center within the party. Is, is that the direction the Democratic Party is going in? And, and is there any sort of like ideological center um, within the conservative movement or at least center within the conservative movement beyond just Trumpism, which so far as I can tell is still largely, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, I just mean this literally, like a cult of personality. Well, see, it's like when, when I was talking about a couple of minutes ago, the, the idea that it's like everything just around Trump, around Trump, that's, that's not even media specific. That's, that's the political parties too. And it, to me, that's, you know, when you get to where are the Democrats going, where are the Republicans going, to me, that's the biggest variable mm. because I could get two versions in my mind of, I can give you, let's say Biden wins in November. How does the Biden presidency play out for, for Democrats? There's one version, which is kind of the conventional political version, where they encounter some trouble pretty quickly. They encounter trouble because the winning coalition is going to be what you're talking about. Sanders voters, young socialist, extremely liberal, all of that with higher income suburban professionals. Mm -hmm. What gives? and then. There's that. And then there's the fact of, of a new president trying to navigate that. And then he becomes, you know, what, what are we used to seeing? We're used to seeing a new president come in. And then two years later, party gets wiped out in the midterm election just because the opposition party becomes the vehicle for every complaint that's out there about the new governing party. So we've been we've been used to that for a generation now. And I could completely see that happening with the Democrats if Biden wins in 2022 and the Republicans just assuming the role of default, you know, Hey, you don't like these Democrats vote for us party. But what about Trump? You know, what if Trump loses? And, and I say it doesn't go away. I don't mean this is not the scenario where he clings to the White House furniture and refuses to be. This is where he leaves the White House you know, on January 20th, 2021. But he doesn't leave Twitter and he doesn't leave cable news. And he still holds rallies and he still holds sway with Republican voters. And he's, by the way, saying to everybody who will listen I might run for president again in 2024. And how can you not take that seriously? He's a former president of the United States, where basically Trump continues to loom large over our politics. And, and what would that do to the parties? Well, number one, to me, it raises the possibility that the Democrats could, could pull off the impossible 
and keep that coalition stitched together for another couple of years. Because if they're united now by being against Trump and Trump is there just as present, you know, in his post-presidency mm. and, and threatening restoration, maybe they, you know, and if the Biden people are smart, if the, if the Biden White House is smart, they will frame their agenda around the threat of Trump and Trump will prove them right, you know, at least to their voters, you know, every step of the way. So I, I, I that's the scenario where the Democrats kind of defy modern political history and, and maybe 2022 is fine for them. And maybe 2024 is fine for them because Trump won't go away. And then conversely, if you look at it from the Republican standpoint, right, like I'm saying, there's the, the normal scenario where the minute Trump is done and gone, they can be what they were in 2010, for instance. They can just be the party that's not this new Democratic governing party. But if if Trump is out there, well, what, what do they do? Are they still scared of having Trump send bad, you know, angry tweets out at them? Um, if Trump is holding rallies, leading prospective Republican 2024 polls, um, how do they handle that? And are, are they still defined by Donald Trump? Does that affect their ability uh, to go out and, and compete in a midterm election? I, I mean, I look at it this way. I think back to 2010, Republicans in the Tea Party midterm picked up 63 seats in the House of Representatives. I believe an essential ingredient in their doing that was that George W. Bush was disappeared. He left the White House in January 2009 and he disappeared. And Republicans could pretend he didn't exist anymore. But if George W. Bush had been on national television every day from January 2009 to Election Day 2010, I don't think the Republicans gained 63 seats. Mm. So I just, I, it's, I, I feel like, you know, if Trump, every indication is Trump, you know, I, I think he'd be likely to leave the White House. That's just me guessing. Um, but I don't think he leaves our politics. And I think it sets up some possibilities there that would be, you know, brand new. I think that's a really interesting uh, observation. And thank you for it, because I have to work on a magazine piece about the uh, <laughs> post-Trump uh, the post-Trump party, assuming uh, that uh, that uh, he loses. Um, and, uh, and I don't know where that is either, but you're, you're right. Like that opened up an ideological space, right? How could it have been suddenly friendly for, um, I wouldn't describe the tea party as libertarian, but, uh, uh but at, for a movement that at least, you know, half of it, um, engaged in certainly fiscally conservative stuff, but also some structurally kind of libertarian ideas and produce the most, um, you know, libertarian members of, of Congress that we've seen in a long time. People like uh, Rand Paul and Justin Amash and whatnot. Uh, well, because he exited, like he left, right? Like suddenly people who were routed, who were given the back of the hand for a long time, there was a possible, you know, contest. And of course, there's a, you know, a boomerang or a mirror effect of if you perceive the existing powerful government doing X and your message is anti X or minus X, then suddenly you see more plausible and interesting. Um, Open question for me is like it can't be that ideology um, this time around because the laughter, <laughs> the laughter would be so severe among people, right? Like it's if if Republicans uh, find themselves in in the uh, minority and they're like, you know what, President Biden is spending too much money. Uh, we really have to focus on the debt uh, and like you know we're gonna impose the debt ceiling again and all this kind of stuff. Like there is people would laugh them off. And, and in fact, I think they're, they have learned not to care about that. I mean, it's been a good six years since Republicans have cared. And many of them have taken part very specifically in their own self-humiliation or their own kind of uh, reversal on these issues. People like Mick Mulvaney um, comes strongly to mind. 
um, uh, and plenty of others as well. Um, so it's going to be very difficult for them to go in the same place that they went in 2010. Um, but that evacuation of the space is the thing. One partial answer to your question, I recall when uh, Jeff Sessions lost uh, the Republican primary, right, um, recently. And here's a guy who Trump has absolutely treated like a cur um, uh, and, and insulted at every step. And his post uh, drubbing comments about Trump were like respectful. Um, so like people who have uh, who have, uh, you know, been bounced by um, by Trump, but who are Republicans, you know, you think they'd left office, they would like be sitting in this position of, of constant criticism. They're not um, uh, many of whom I think still have some fear of this person and not just the person and like the potential reprisals, but that he has the strongest audience in the room. They've been playing in a Republican place or a conservative place their whole lives. He looms the largest in that space. If they want to work in that field, it's going to be problematic if they're going to spend all their time criticizing. That's a, by the way, I just, that's, I had forgotten that sessions one and that, that, that is an interesting potential window into it. To I mean, Bob Corker hasn't turned into some kind of brave truth teller since he exited. Right. I mean, you have a couple of people like Jeff Flake and Justin Amash, um, but I think Flake's like evacuated himself from a lot of public life. Um, <laughs> it's just not a it's not a uh, it's not a happy place to be. Any successful Republican candidate for the next couple of years for anything needs Trump voters, needs people who cast ballots for Don, do cast votes for Donald yeah. Trump. There's no getting around just the, the math of it. And the longer, as you point out, the longer that he's in the middle of the picture and it's hard to imagine him not being, um, as long as he's drawing breath, what replaces that? It, it's mm-hmm. going to be Tom Cotton. Um, you know, as much as I hate Tom Cotton, which is a lot, um, I'm not sure he has the animal magnetism <laughs> to really <laughs> like draw the kind of adulation, the kind of party shaping uh, uh, behavior that you see from uh, Trump. It's just, you know, he's a reasonably powerful senator and from, you know, uh, good on him for it, but like, I don't think he's going to bring a lot of uh, troops of uh, public opinion. Yeah, I'm. I'm. So we we talked about a number of things. I'm, I'm still thinking about um, something you said about the the media uh, a moment ago, Steve, when you were mentioning in your preamble um, to a question response to a question that you have read a lot of good reporting. You think you've encountered a lot of it, and I, I, I as I mentioned a moment ago, I would agree. Um, I think the the timeline um, that the New York Times did that investigation related to like the Rittenhouse um, shooting um, in Kenosha was actually just really, I thought, phenomenally good um, and helped to disentangle um, something that I, I think was probably daunting to a number of people. And they did it in pretty quick fashion. They leveraged a lot of you know, technological things that would not have been at our disposal 20 odd years ago um, in order to make sense out of a a very complicated situation. Um, It's not the sort of thing where it sort of definitively made it clear to everyone exactly what happened here, but it did give us a much clearer sense of what was going on um, in that circumstance. And and that was something that I found pretty inspiring. Um, And, you know, one thing I would say is while it's certainly the case that um, public opinion about the media, quote unquote, broadly, um, has been going down. And there are some interesting trends. Um, I, I 
know, Kevin Russo at the New York Times frequently writes about the degree to which um, these, you know, independent, uh, upstart, mostly conservative outlets tend to outperform like establishment media organizations on Facebook by like pretty profound um, orders of magnitude. It's crazy. Um, I think there is something probably good um, on the horizon when it comes to our ability to generate quality, independently verified news. And I, I think with respect to individuals being able to improve their aptitude to make determinations about what's trustworthy and what's not. And I think it's probably, it would be hard for me to explain all the reasons why I'm optimistic about that, despite the fact that, you know, there are deep fakes and, you know, fake news still tend to be things that people talk about a lot. Um, but I, I think I see like hints of some improvement there. And I think even when we talk about like the technological platforms, um, namely, you know, Twitter and Facebook that seem to, that seem to play into our impulses towards tribalism. Um, I'll, I'll also say that, you know, I've had other experiences like my experience on Clubhouse um, more recently, which is a, another social platform that I've talked about on the podcast before, but where, you know, you're using audio and you're using video when you have engagement with people. And the, you know, the dopamine rush that people get when they're sort of ripping into their political opponents on Twitter and the celebration that you receive afterwards when you do it, that's one thing. Um, but I do wonder about opportunities to, you know, create new communities in the midst of all of this upset um, about the possibility that even while the pandemic hasn't quite brought us together and has kind of politicized everything, um, if it won't also be humanizing um, in, in certain other ways and allow us to, you know, really sort of think about what matters in different contexts. Um, and if these other platforms, you know, where we're not just shooting um, textual assaults at one another and anonymous strangers over the Internet, um, but where we're engaging with each other, sometimes you can hear my voice you can you can understand that I'm being sincere when I say the thing that I'm saying. You can see that, you know, you can see in my eyes that I, I share your concern. Um, you know something about me and my kids um, or a kid. I only have one at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say. Pretty sure. There? Pretty sure it's just one. I, it's not a Freudian. Please tell me you don't use tracer. sarcasm in these places. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, my, even my sarcasm is better in these other platforms. <laughs> I don't know. Those, those things make me at least a little optimistic um, about the future. And I know, you know, when I mentioned Kevin, when, when Kevin writes up these stories about the, the fact that, you know, Ben Shapiro or someone else is like outperforming the New York Times, I think it's generally with this, you know, deep sense of like consternation that these people, the wrong kind of people, are essentially able to broadcast their ideas out to, you know, uh, this wide universe. And essentially anybody could do that. Isn't that terrible? Um, I think the fact that anyone can do that is possibly something that could force, you know, elite media or institutions to actually be better at their jobs. Um, I think the kind of stuff that you can do if as a smaller independent media outfit um, in terms of actually generating quality reporting and that it can be amplified and shared broadly, um, even by like establishment media players, um, is probably a good thing. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, are these, 
am I fooling myself here or do do these green shoots that I'm describing like actually sound credible to you guys? You know, I, the, the thought I have listening, by the way, I, I, I said I couldn't find the optimistic note you did. So I, I, I appreciate hearing that. Maybe making it up. <laughs> well, no, but I, you know what? There's, but I feel like there's a precedent for what, for what you're saying. I mean, I just, I, I look at how if you go back, you know, 15, 20 years when you, you know, when blogs first came around, mm-hmm. um, you know, they had a disruptive effect and you could argue there were, there were, you know, some very negative aspects of that, but I think they, they upped people's games. Um, they, they brought new voices in. There are people who, you know, um, my own career in media, as I think of it, you know, I got my first job in 2002 and it was with a website and it was that at the time that was like a crazy thing. Um, a website that was devoted to covering state level politics. And, um, we could, we were able to make it, you know, basically commercially viable, um, in, in 2002. And I remember telling people I was going to write for a website and it was, uh-huh. you know, they didn't think I had a real job. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Newspapers. And it was like, I, I started out as in New Jersey and it's like, you know, the, the, the dream in 2002 quickly became clear to me for what I was doing covering New Jersey state politics. Like I, I was supposed to aspire to like, if I did my job really well in a year, the star ledger will hire me or in a year, the Bergen record will hire me. And I look at it now, you know, 15, 20 years later. And I mean, the star ledger and the Bergen record are barely hanging on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The world is just zipped, right. You know, everything is, um, you know, but yeah, there were opportunities in that. And I, I, I in what you're saying there, I hear opportunities. What, what say you, Matt? I mean, I've been betting on this stuff one way or the other for 30 years, man. You know, like as soon as, as soon as we could make a, a, a newspaper on a Macintosh, uh, and print it out, which is a big deal, you know, when you don't have to have a typesetter, you can just sort of use a laser printer and, and get things done. Um, we started making newspapers, um, mm-hmm. back, back in the old days, I was a very happy, you know, participant in those early blog days. I was a late comer to podcasting, but I think we've done okay for our, our, ourselves here. And, um, and actually the, you know, there is a commonality not to be too navel gazing with it, but, um, uh, you know, the response that we would get from blogging in particularly after September 11th, and we're recording this literally on September 11th mm. and haven't even mentioned it once, which is a, which is interesting. Um, uh, <laughs> and I think kind of healthy maybe or something. Um, well, it's a, no, a, I think it's just confirmation of what Paul Krugman said earlier today, which is that, you know, nine 11, not really a big deal. The real terrorists are, you know, the people in the white house who are allowing COVID to kill us and also white supremacists. I'm they're, going they're to the defend. They, they the were always sing- the big problem in America. I'm going to defend the single tweet on that thread that I kept seeing, which is he said something like, we didn't really go all that crazy after that. Um, Americans didn't really turn on their Muslim brothers and sisters. And mm-hmm. there was a lot more understanding and stuff. The only thing wrong with that, with that particular tweet was that we didn't really go crazy because that doesn't encompass uh, the wars that we fought and the mm-hmm. crazy kind of Patriot Act type stuff that I find crazy. <laughs> the ones that we're kind of, kind of still fighting. But um, the rest of that tweet is absolutely true and totally underappreciated. Uh, Gustav Niebuhr wrote a really good book that I reviewed, I think for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, about that. Uh, he was a religion reporter at the time, and he went to cover about all the terrible hate crimes that are obviously happening to every Muslim in the country. And what he found was that there were some um, not just against Muslims, but against Sikhs who were mistaken as Muslims is awful. Um, but that the overall story 
in the context of a big, crazy place like America was that actually people were seeking out understanding and acting on Americans as individuals were acting pretty well in a way that was going against uh, people's uh, expectations. Um, so as someone, uh, but like the response that we would get uh, writing in those uh, early kind of blog days reminds me of the response that we get from podcasting, which is unlike mm. anything else ever in media. TV has its own thing, right? Because TV, you are a superstar in someone's living room. And if, and if that's their world, then the response that you get is sort of like, it's much more awestruck. Um, it, it can be more galvanizing, but it's really personal, the podcast and the blog thing. I love it so much. I can't begin to tell you, not just because it's positive, but often, often when it's negative, but it's just human, you mm -hmm. know, like it's a, it's a human contact to people. And I think one of the ongoing challenges of any kind of media that gets bigger than a little bit big, um, is that it's hard to retain, um, that sense of communication with an, an intimacy with an audience there. Um, some of that you can do through smoke, smoke and mirrors or just like being a, of, you know, otherworldly communicator. Um, but the kind that I find really rewarding that people respond to is when you're not really doing much of anything special, but like trying to muddle through the world like they are um, and trying to approach things in a way um, at an insane time that strikes people as being at least half not insane. Um, and I think that within that, there is wonderful market opportunity to get back to your original question, uh, Camille. Yes, there is. Um, for me, the opportunity is not just to see how many silos can be built that are interesting and attract their own kind of electrical jolts, but like what happens if, if some of the silos can start mm -hmm. confederating a little bit. So I'm, I'm hoping to see some of that activity as well. Yeah. Um, and I would like to see among, you know, the major... The larger um, uh, journalistic institutions um, to uh, kind of react and adapt themselves better to that competition. And I think you do see that. I mean, New York Times podcasting, the ones that I don't hate, uh, do. <laughs> that's kind of a joke because of nice white parents. But um, uh, uh, no, they, you know, they have uh, done some really remarkable work out there. And there's a lot of, of brain power at these institutions and um, that can be leveraged and made into something new. But it's really hard for if you're successful at a thing and you make money at it or, or build prestige at a thing and you have more than 100 employees, boy, that's tough to yeah. be nimble, nimble going forward. It's just yeah, like yeah. the forces of conservatism, not political, mm -hmm. uh, and institutions like that are so overwhelming. I mean, working at the LA Times opinion section, which is sort of a small little chunk of a big, uh, then big newspaper and trying to change anything there was just such an incredible slog. Um, at some point you can like control your own little work and hope you can move things in the right direction. But, uh, I think, I think media is meant to be and media revolutions are meant to be done from the bottom up and then, and then create new things. Yeah. Steve, any, any parting thoughts for us? Here's one for you. Just my, my hopeful note that I, I could end it on. Um, there's a lot of um, attention out there. Um, I think right now about, I think there's a lot of is the media on the verge of screwing up um, election night. Um, the results of the presidential race. Um, and I, I would, my two thoughts on that are just quickly. Number one, I, I just, um, 
I, I think I want people to know, just given what I do, that is something on my mind, on the mind of everybody that I'm talking to. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it's something we're taking very seriously. And I, I think we're, we're um, going to be prepared for. Um, and, and number two, um, I think there are, for all the possibilities for how this could be a weeks, you know, long venture trying to figure out what happened on election night. There are a couple scenarios out there and they start to look at this where there's, there's potentially at least more clarity on election night hmm. than, uh, than a lot of the expectation right now. So oh. just, um, talking about the media, I, I, and it's one thing I, I, I think um, there's always a potential for something to go wrong. We're trying to be on guard for it, but I, I, I just, I, I see a lot of chatter out there that, that we're all kind of just um, oblivious to this. And I, I just, I, I was, would want to point out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel it's something we're, we're preparing for. So. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's good. Cause that's actually, I mean, to the extent I have concerns, they're certainly high on the list. You know, oh, I think yeah. a lot of uncertainty about the results of the election that is sustained for weeks and months would be pretty disconcerting. We'll see what happens. Steve, I uh, am enormously grateful for you spending some time with us, giving us some clarity, chatting some poll stuff with us um, and beyond. And uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do it again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you for having me on. I always enjoy this. All right. Bro. Um, thank you for helping uh, me write my story. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to reading it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. Follow